Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Being a parent can be really challenging. Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them on their parenting journey. Everyone deserves someone they can turn to for help with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. Being a parent can be really challenging. It's normal to feel uncertain about whether you're doing the right things to raise healthy and happy children. That's why Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them build confidence in their parenting journey. Everyone deserves to have someone they can turn to for support with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. Special Operations, Covert Ops, Espionage, The Team House, with your hosts, Jack Murphy and David Park. Hey guys, welcome to The Team House. I'm Jack Murphy here with Dave Park. This is episode 119. Uh, we're super excited to have on the show with us Chaps. He's the host of Zero Block 30 along with Kate. And welcome to the show, man. Thank you for uh, coming on tonight. Being a parent can be really challenging. It's normal to feel uncertain about whether you're doing the right things to raise healthy and happy children. That's why Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them build confidence in their parenting journey. Everyone deserves to have someone they can turn to for support with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. Stoked to be here. Thanks, fellas. Yeah, absolutely, man. Uh, so Chaps is a former Marine, served in Fallujah, uh, many other interesting experiences we're going to get into. And um, I, I just want to start off with the, the, uh, the question we ask all of our guests is about their origin story. If you could tell us a little bit about where you grew up and sort of that path that sort of led you eventually to the Marine Corps. Yeah, I was an, a Navy kid. My dad was in the Navy. Um, and so we ended up moving around a ton. I spent some time in Pax River, Maryland and Jacksonville. But I consider Jacksonville to be home for me. Uh, my family comes from a very, like, very conservative family, I would say. My grandfather was a pastor in a church for a long time. And before I joined the Marine Corps, I thought that was the path I was going to take as well. And if, I'm sure that if you listen to anything I've ever done now, that's probably a shock that that was my <laughs> initial goal. Um, but I was almost, I was about to graduate seminary and I was 21 years old and I thought, you know, I don't really have any life experiences. And I had worked at a small church in North Carolina and there was a couple of Vietnam vets, a couple of Korea vets. And I thought, what real world experience do I have to impart any type of quote wisdom on these dudes as mm -hmm. a 21 year old guy telling these people about my experiences. And I thought, you know what, maybe I'll do that too. Maybe I'll take a little break and join the Marine Corps and see some actual real life things and not just be a college student who's never done anything but college and pastor. 
So I, I told my mom, I was like, I think I'm going to go down to a recruiter's office and talk to him about the military. And this was in 2003. And my mom was like, are you insane? Like, <laughs> you're, you're so close to graduating. And there hasn't been a lot of people in my family that graduated from college. My grandfather was the only one. And she was like, you're almost there. Just stick it out. Stick it out. And that's, I can do the last semester whenever I get back and whenever I'm done. So I told her that I was going to talk to an Air Force recruiter. That's what I was originally going to do. Uh, but he was late. The Air Force recruiter was late to our appointment. And a Marine gunny came out in his dress blue Charlies. And he looked the part. Like, yeah. if you wanted to have a guy that looked like he should have stepped off, with, off, off of a movie set or a commercial, it was this dude. And he was like, you look like you're in shape. Can you do some pull-ups? I was like, yeah, I can do some pull-ups. So I busted out some pull-ups. He's like, you don't want to go into the airport. You want to join the Marines. <laughs> and I was like, hmm. I was like, well, this is might be more uh, than I was really bargaining for. I was just hoping for a little bit of experience. I was like, but I guess if I'm going to do it, let's go ahead and do it. And that day I signed everything. Like it, it wasn't like I went home and talked to family or talked to any friends or counselors. I just did everything. I went to MEPS like four days later. And they said, when do you want to go? I said, I'll go as soon as you have a spot available for me. And so two weeks later, two or three weeks later, I was on my way to Paris Island. Did you did you have a goal of what you wanted to do in the Air Force? Or did it just seem like the Air Force would would be kind of the most, the easiest way to get some life experience? Well, the only real experience I had around the military was planes. My, my dad was a flight engineer and my okay. stepdad was also in the Navy and he was a, a plane mechanic as well. And so I... I thought maybe that's the route I would go. But then I also thought, I don't even know how to use a wrench. Like, I don't know any of this stuff. Like, yeah, my aptitude test came back high on language and like things like that. Mechanically inclined, that was not me at all. So I really didn't know what was there. I was just going to, I thought I would look at a list of things that were available to me and just pick one. I didn't really care. And that's how it went. And the Marine Corps, they offered me, um, MP, right off the bat, it was MP or counterintelligence or intel. And I was like, ah, I think I'll do the MP. I don't, it seems like an office job to do intel. I don't want to do that. I had no basis of knowledge for any right. of what they actually did. I just assumed off the top of my brain what was going on. And I picked being an MP because they told me that you're not going to be a cop. You're getting, we're in war. You're going to go be a field MP. You're going to do things there. And I thought, okay, well, that sounds fine. I'll do that. And then if, I could also be a cop whenever I get out. I had no idea that that's not the way it works. Like you can't just transfer into a police department or anything like that. So I ended up doing pretty well in schools and they offered me, I could either pick to go SRT, which is like the Marine Corps version of SWAT, or I could go be a dog handler. And I had no idea that being a dog handler was even a thing. Right. And I picked that and it was a smart decision and it ended up being what I, I think it's the best job in the Marine Corps by far. Chaps, about what year was this when all this was going down? 2003. Okay. And so I, I went to school and finished finished canine school and then went on to Okinawa. And I some of my, I guess some of my beliefs started to shift a little bit, like all, already, like just being pretty new, things that I was seeing, things that I hadn't been really exposed to. Because when I left high school, I went to a Christian college and hadn't been exposed to a lot of the things that were out there in the world. Like I, I just had a very narrow scope of what people believed and what people from the North were like, what people from out West were like. So I started to just really pay attention and moving out to Okinawa. I knew 
that there were certain things that I wanted to accomplish. And if you are a person that joined after 9-11 happened, I feel like you really wanted to see combat. Like right. if you joined the Marine Corps in that time, I wanted to go to a combat zone. I had been in for three years. They weren't sending a bunch of people except for like third recon battalion in Okinawa. That was really the only groups that were going. And I fought, like, I was like, I want to do this. I want to go, I'm a dog handler, I'm a bomb dog handler. I want to go find IEDs. And I eventually got my spot to go. And I had been in for about three years whenever that happened. And I get to Iraq and one of our dog handlers, his name is Dustin Lee. He was killed by a rocket that went over a, a fob's wall and hit him. Um, he was about to go home in like three weeks. And whenever I had trained to go to Iraq, I was just doing like entry control points. I was doing some some route clearance, but not a whole lot. And he was working with recon at the time. He was a dog handler that was only working with recon. And after he was killed, they asked me if I wanted to be the replacement for him. And if I wanted to not do what I had trained to do, but to go out with recon guys and they could spin me up. And I thought, yeah, I'll do that. Like, uh, sure. And I uh, honestly, I didn't want to do it, but I also didn't want to feel like a pussy for not for saying no. <laughs> <laughs> so, can, can you can you t can you tell us a little bit, sort of like how the dog program works? Because you know, you have bomb dogs, you have dogs on on the assault, you have different types of dogs. Is that are you trained differently in school for each one of those, or how does that all work? Yes. So the techniques and the training for both bomb and drug dogs are the exact same in the DOD. The way that you go about it is the same. And civilian police departments, as you probably know, whenever they find drugs, they can the dog can scratch at it, they can sniff at it, they can do all kinds of stuff. Well, we train all of our dogs to have a passive sit response. So no matter what they're detecting, the response is always going to be the same, which keeps it the training. It shortens it. It's a really smart way to do it. And then every single person that goes through the school also will learn how to do the attack portion of the of the job as well. So some of the branches of service don't use dual purpose is what we would call it, where they can both detect and attack. Uh -huh. The Marine Corps is, especially at that time, the Marine Corps was very invested in having all dogs be able to do both of those. Oh. If you couldn't, if you if you couldn't have an attack dog that could do detection, you guys probably weren't going to deploy as a dog team together. Interesting. Um, the most important part was obviously the explosion component, but for being in recon or with the seals or anything like that, you had to have the attack portion because they would stick us on squirter detail all the time. Yeah. So, I mean, how does a dog prioritize? So you're on an objective and the dog is dual trained. So how does it prioritize, you know, like neutralizing an enemy and getting distracted by, oh, I just sniffed you know, an explosive over here in the corner and to indicate on the explosive. They have a trigger word that the handlers will give. So the, the dog will kind of know what the objective is at the time. So if I'm looking for bombs, I would say like, seek it out or look for it or something like that. Like where it gives the dog an indication, oh, I'm using my nose. Now. But if it's going to be something that's aggressive in nature, we'll say like, watch them or pay attention, what you got or something like that, like to get their attention on an individual and then like point the person out and do the, you just, it's almost like turning the dog on and off in different operating modes almost. That's fantastic. <clears throat> yeah, I didn't know that dogs could do both roles. I didn't yeah. either. And I mean, obviously like we're kind of the, the Malinois and things like that. We're familiar with the dogs that are primarily used for assault. What type of dog is best suited for like a dual hatted job? 
easily Malinois. Malinois is the best. I would probably, if we did like a power ranking, I would say a Malinois is the best. And then a Dutch shepherd would be right behind that. And then a German shepherd. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. So have it and the different dogs have different capabilities. Um, like, a for anybody that's going to be in a high speed unit, if you ask a dog handler, every single one will say, I want a Malinois because they'll work for days. They'll yeah. work until they die. Like they, they do not care. They will, they love it. They love to work. A shepherd has a little bit more difficult time transitioning environments than a Malinois would. So for instance, being in Okinawa, it's a very human environment, it's jungle climate, and then going to Iraq where it's very dry and a lot, a lot hotter temperature wise and the feet are different. It's more difficult for a lab or a German shepherd to adjust than a, a Malinois. A Malinois, you could just kick it out of a plane and be like, go do your thing. Now. God, it's like, wherever we are, we don't care. The, the military has tried to keep this kind of quiet, I think, but the Marine Mammal Program had that same issue during the Gulf War, and they brought their dolphins over to the Persian Gulf, and I think like six to nine of them died. Oh, because, because of the, of the environmental shift? Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Yeah, and that was a really cool part about being – I used to teach. I was an instructor at the dog school, and occasionally they would bring us over to SeaWorld and let us – um, see how they manipulate animal behaviors and things like that. So learning the psychology behind dogs was just a fantastic experience to have in my own. And it really helped me with raising kids. Yeah. Too, honestly. yeah. yeah. Like a lot of the principles are the exact same. Like yeah. principles of conditioning are the same, no matter what animal you're dealing with. Do, do they primarily just the military or at least were you in the Marine Corps? Do you primarily use like the positive conditioning model or, or sort of so mixed? It's, almost changed with society and how dogs have been trained. Like when I first started, it was all the trainers were compulsion. Like you put the pain on the dog's body so that they know that you're in charge. Now they've seen that dogs that don't have fear induced will work better for the handlers. If you can't, if you have the ability to use positive reinforcement and positive training, the dog ends up usually as a better product. Uh -huh. But if you have a troubled dog, like, uh, for example, my first drug dog that I ever had, his name was Orlando. He was a Dutch shepherd. He was about seven and a half, eight years old and just an asshole, like just a, <laughs> like an old curmudgeon gunny based type of personality, but as a dog. And he had just gotten to the point where I'm going to bite and I'm never going to let go. You're yeah. going to have to just choke me off. Like he was essentially like an MMA fighter who was not going to tap. Like that's who Orlando was. <laughs> And my trainer was like, well, why don't we try a leash slap on him? And a leash slap is where you take the leash and you hit it underneath the dog's belly. And that's a tender spot for them as opposed to their neck that can develop like titration where they have the ability to take more pain. And I did the leash slap. Well, I missed my target of his belly and hit him right in the dick. I mean, it was <laughs> straight in the dick. He yelped, spit it out. The next time we went up, the next time I was like, ouch, whenever he did it, he immediately spit. <laughs> My, <laughs> the kennel master didn't know what happened. I hit the dog in the, and he was like, did you just make Orlando out? And I was like, I, I think so. Steph. And he's like, try it again. And we did it again. He's like, I haven't seen Orlando out in like three years. <laughs> and I was like, well, maybe you should have hit him in the dick. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, and it that, ended up working. That's awesome. And then for you guys, because you're trained as MPs, which is, you know, obviously kind of law enforcement centered, but now they're putting you in a position to go out and basically either be in a, 
almost an EOD type situation or an assault type situation, how do they prepare you guys for those roles? Not very well at that time. It was when I went out, the first patrol I ever did with recon was they were giving hand for like it was that night and we didn't like I didn't have a radio. So they were giving hand signals and I hadn't done hand signals for like platoon operations or squad operations since I went to MCT like four years ago. I had no idea what right. they were talking about. Right. And I was the point man. So I, I like they put me up at the point and I, I didn't know what was going on. And right. I finally told the team leader, like, I either need somebody to stand beside me and tell me like what you guys are doing, because there was one point where it was really dangerous. I yeah. didn't see, I didn't hear or didn't notice the stop command. And I was looking for bombs. I was a good five, 600 meters ahead of my, the rest of my team. Like, and I had no idea what I turned around. It was dark. I thought I had been like left behind. I was like, how I'm, fucking leading how, yeah. how am i left behind when i'm at the front and so i circled back and went back and then they finally had they taught me more as i as it the deployment went on and what and i finally like things clicked and i got in with the program and everything ended up going fine and i was fine but it was it was a very scary proposition being like you said as an mp one i didn't do any law enforcement so i had no expertise there all i did was a dog trainer and I had no idea what some of these tactics were. I was basically flying blind. Wow. That's, I, and that's tough because not only are you leading the way like on a patrol, so you, know, you need to have good patrolling tactics, but then when you got to get on target, you know, if you're in a house or in a complex, you're, you're sort of out front with that too, right? That, that, and yes. this, is, this is all mm -hmm. OJT since you're in theater. Yeah, yeah. And it's yeah. Not, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, um, and even doing like, even doing house clearing, like, yeah. I mean, because I'm, as you know, in Fallujah, you're going through house after house after house. And luckily, there was a lot of OJT because we did it so often where yeah. I eventually got pretty good where they were, they were smart enough to be like, okay, what you're going to do, you're going to go into the first and then just every single house, no matter what, you just stick to the left side. And they, they adjusted their tactics based on me being kind of ignorant instead of me having to learn everything on the fly. They gave me one exact location to go to every single time, and that's what I did every single time. So talk, talk to us about that getting kind of like spun up for Fallujah and like how did that come about? Um, you start working with First Recon. How soon was it before that came up on your guys' radar? It, I had been in country for eight days whenever wow. it happened. So I had only done one other mission outside of Recon, which is probably good because I didn't learn any of the – the bad traits from because the unit that I was supposed to work with at first was and nothing against them at all, but it was a it was an army reservist unit that had taken over a certain portion of I think it was a third of the 509. They had taken over a certain part of the AO and I was going to be attached to them. And luckily I didn't learn the army way of doing things and then have to learn the Marine Corps way because then I would have been super confused about right. what was going on. And I'm just now getting to the point, honestly, where I'm honest about it, where at that point I would have been like, no, dude, I know fucking everything. Like, right. of course I know. Like, I'm not going to make myself look like an idiot. Right. One, because I was an MP and a dog handler and I was with people that I revered for what they were doing. Like, and for us, like being with Force Recon or being with Recon, like that's as high as it goes right. in, the, in the Marine Corps. And I didn't want to feel like I was letting them down or that they couldn't trust me because I did. My dog was awesome. Like I didn't know tactics, but I knew for for certain if there was a bomb anywhere, 
around where we were at, my dog was going to find it. And he proved that time and time again. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because I think that any type of person who is in support of a unit like that um, might feel the need to like uh, to act confident and competent and all these things around those guys thinking, oh, they won't accept me if they don't. When actually being humble and like, hey, this is my job. This is what I know. But this other stuff I don't know. Guys will usually take you under their arm and teach you what you need to know. Um, it's sort of the opposite of what we think it's going to be. Right. And I think the best thing that I did to prepare myself joining the Marine Corps was honestly reading Generation Kill. Like Generation Kill had just came out before I was joining. And I read that book and learned how like Colbert and some of those guys treated attachments and how that they wanted people to be honest about not knowing certain things. Well, it turned out that Colbert was the platoon sergeant that I was working with. Like, so That's it was all full circle. Like a lot of those guys that were in Generation Kill were now I was working with. Them. Yeah. And so I did have even in that I had a little bit of almost starstruck. Like I was like, these yeah. guys, I read about these dudes before I joined. And so that was kind of difficult too. like being, to put that aside, listen to what they're saying, doing what they're doing. But it also put, put me at ease because I knew their experiences and I knew that they had a ton of trigger time and that they knew what they were doing and they were capable of doing what needed to be done. Yeah. So talk, awesome. talk to us about, you know, you're, you're eight days in getting spun up for Fallujah. How did this start to go down? Yeah, and there really was the dog handlers, the way that we did it at the initial stages of the war was it was really kind of messed up because... <clears throat> Typical units, like if you're going with the Ranger Battalion, everybody's going at the same time. You're all going, you do all your pre-deployment stuff together, mm. you deploy together, you're living together. Dog handlers at that time, you would take three from Okinawa, 12 from Pendleton, mm. 15 from Lejeune, a couple from Cherry Point. You send them all together in one spot, and then a staff and CO, no officers involved at all, a staff and CO who doesn't know any of the other Marines except for his own just points to you and tells you what spot you're going to go to. And that's where you go. And you ended up getting farmed out as soon as you get there. The way that they did it just made zero sense at all. Mm -hmm. And so there wasn't everything that we did pre-deployment was very, very generic. It was, can your dog find an ID in the middle of the road? We're going to hide some bombs in a car. Can you, can your dog find those? We're going to do a couple in a house, but the training was so minimal at the time. That looking back and in my time as a staff MCO, if I would have sent Marines to combat knowing what I know and one of them was killed, I would have wore that burden forever. Yeah. Like that that I didn't prepare my people. We were not prepared in a lot of ways. Yeah. Just weren't. I mean, but the you know, this I mean, Iraq and Afghanistan, they were huge learning experiences for the military, right? And and how right. cause we'd been a peacetime military for so long. And you know, who when did the idea, because I know certain units, I think, brought dogs into theater because they already sort of had that advanced sort of, we're, we're learning how to incorporate dogs into the assault, like maybe like a SWAT team does. But for a lot of units, incorporating dogs into that element was very new. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm sure there are a lot of mistakes made, like right off the bat, and a lot of lessons. Oh, tons. Made. Yeah. Tons. I mean, you would have battalion commanders that, never did field training exercises with dogs being incorporated with their Marines. They had very little idea of what the capabilities of the Marines are. I mean, I had a colonel one time ask me 
So let's say we have a little bird that comes by. If you get in the little bird and we go down the route, can we kind of like have your dog sitting on the outside? Would he be able to tell if there's a bomb on the road? I'm like, what fucking in a helicopter? Like, no, dude, what are you talking about? <laughs> right, right. Like, no. And like, I'm a corporal at the time talking to a colonel. I'm like, are you, are you a fucking idiot? Like, what right, do you right. mean? Can he smell? Like, you know how fast these blades are going? No, dude. Like, well, you can't I, smell shit. I mean, I remember talking to like a major in the talk and having to explain to him, like, man, the winds are so hot or are, are blowing so high in these mountains that for as a sniper, it's going to throw your rounds way off. And he's like, the wind affects bullets. What? You know? Like, yeah. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's like what you don't know, you don't know. I mean, every major should probably know that wind affects rounds. But like, <laughs> if you never worked, if you never worked with dogs, right. you really have no idea. And I, I had one episode where we had, uh, we had taken a, a dude into custody and he was, he was already zip tied and he had, um, his face was covered and he had the goggle, the blacked out goggles. And one of the captains was like, Hey, so have you ever let your dog like bite somebody for real? And I was like, well, not in like real life scenario. No, like lots of training. He's like, so if this guy like starts to get off the track, could you like, could we see it? <laughs> I was like, no, sir. That's a fucking war crime. Right. Like, no, I can't do that. Right. I can't just release. And you had to like explain to him, like, in order for me to release my dog, deadly force has to be authorized. Like right. it, in the force continuum, it's level six and level seven is shooting somebody. Like I have to have good reason to do this. I, and it'll fuck somebody up. Like it's not going to be a small little <laughs> right, bite. Right. It's not my a dog's nip. name was my dog's name is Psycho for a reason. <laughs> right, like he's, right. like he's going to hurt somebody. And not only that, but you're sort of training your dog at that point to to bite prisoners, right? You're saying this is okay. This is an acceptable behavior to bite somebody. Yes. Who... Yeah. And this was shortly, pretty shortly after Abu Ghraib too, like where you had all the different dog stuff that was coming out. So we got, oh, yeah. we didn't get a whole lot of tactics briefings, but we got a lot of legality briefings. Right. Like this is what you can do. You can't. Like if we would have, if they would have found out even in interrogations, like I had to make sure that if they were doing interrogations in the field that I had to step away because I knew what the ramifications were. If I let my dog be in the room when somebody was getting interrogated and I wasn't going to do that, like I wasn't, I couldn't do it. So talking to them and them not knowing all of those SOPs either of what dog handlers could and could not do. After a while, it started to sort itself out and commanders on the ground and leadership on the ground started to know more and more about our capabilities, which was really cool, too, because then they wanted us. And it right. felt like being in the recon community or being with grunts and having an MP attached. Nobody really wants that. Like, right. like the fucking MP is going to he's going to give me a ticket or something right. like that. <laughs> but in reality, we just wanted to help. Like We wanted to do our part, too. Yeah. And I mean, for people who are watching, uh, whether it's fairly or unfairly, MPs tend to sort of be reviled, uh, you know, at times. Oh, I think and, it's totally fair. Yeah. <laughs> it's totally fair. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, there's no reason to give tickets and stuff on and on base. Like, that. there's certain things that I think you do just because you're bored, honestly. Yeah. I guess, yeah. And that's just the way it goes down. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so. Step into the world of power loyalty and luck i'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse with family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chabacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday 
I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather. Now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. So was, were you the first handler that this recon element had worked with? No, Verdi's replacing the guy. Uh, oh, you're replacing the guy. I'm sorry about that. That's right. Yeah, and that was with that was with third. And at that time, whenever third was leaving, like uh, first recon and third recon were doing their left seat right, and Dustin was on the outbound, so they needed somebody to come in, and they hadn't had that person. I just okay. had to go a little bit earlier um, than the person that was going to do it. They sent him to a different spot and sent me here, um, or sent me with with first recon. But luckily, the captain that I had, another captain that was in the, the battalion, had worked with a dog before. And it was a dog handler that I knew. And we had very similar dogs. So I was like, yes, these dogs are very similar in the way that you could utilize them. So working with, and at that time with uh, First Recon, I was in Charlie Company. We had three different platoon commanders. And even working with the different platoon commanders, the way that different commanders would grasp what the dog could do or what they couldn't do was different like you there are some that i was really happy to work with they knew very well what our capabilities were what we could do when i would have to brief them constantly he would just be like okay you're going to go out with these six guys and come back whenever you come back and that was great and once they understood what our capabilities were they realized what a force multi multiplier it was like when i had the ability because some of their breachers have the ability to have small c4 um like shape charge that they could attach to what they thought what we knew was an IED and they could blow it up in place when they realized we didn't have to wait for route clearance that I could do it myself uh -huh. they were like shit yeah because the year before when they were there they had to wait and they would taking shots all the time and karma like from people on roofs that know that they plant IEDs and then we have to wait in place like with our Humvees and stuff like that right so once they realized that they didn't have to do that with me anymore then it was like they brought me into the fold like he is valuable here and he has a place uh, that's amazing before we move on i got to take a quick break for something i'm sure you're familiar with chaps a word from our sponsors there you go the sponsor for tonight's show is manscaped a male grooming company yeah if any of you have male grooming concerns they have a uh, a trimmer with some uh, different guard attachments on it and a little led light to get to the taint it's, those it's, back, those yeah, they got areas. the lawnmower 4.0 with a nice ceramic blade. I, you know, in the Marine Corps, not might not be so much, but you know, I did a little bit of time in the Navy before the Army, and and you know, like grooming was, you know, we want to look good down there, and oh uh, yeah, yeah, and so you know, anytime you try to trim yourself with like standard clippers, it's a huge risk, right? I mean, mm -hmm. for whatever reason, that area is super sensitive. Um, but Manscaped has solved that problem. Um, by creating a proprietary blade, you know, ceramic with, with a little guard that takes care of you. It's got a nice little LED to show you what's going on down there. And they also have a couple new products that actually I've been using. They have a body wash and a shampoo uh, that are both really good. Yeah, I mean, it'll make you feel like a man. Isn't that right, D? And ball deodorant. They have ball deodorant, too. They have the ball deodorant and the tonic, the aftershave tonic, which is <laughs> super nice. It's It'll like... It'll wake you up. It'll wake you up. You know, you slap a little bit, bit of that on up a nice tight shave and then, uh, yeah. So, guys, uh, the use the promo code TEAM20 when you go and make your order at manscaped.com. And what does that get you, 20% off? And free shipping. And free shipping. 20% off and free shipping. It, yeah. Use the promo code TEAM20. In, in honor of the Marines, give, give, your, give your bad boy a high and tight. Like, snap it up. 
Give it a horseshoe. Fuck it. There you go. (laughs) So, chaps, chaps, hit us up um, about the the battle and going into the city and how this unfolded. Yeah. So it was, um, it was definitely something that I was not ready for at all. Like whenever we, the first firefight that I was ever in, I remember thinking I probably should have listened to my mom. Like this was this was a bad idea. I've gotten a little more. I just wanted a little bit taste of real life, and this was more than I had bargained for. And I I don't know if that's the same for everyone when you're when you first hear rounds coming at you and like coming through walls and things like that. But in all reality, I was very scared. Like I I didn't know a whole lot about what they were doing because I had done at that point we had been in country together and been working together for about probably about two or three weeks. So I was getting a little more comfortable and spun up, but we hadn't talked about what to happen if we were actually in the middle of a firefight, where they were going to go. And they, and it was honest to God, amazing. And still looking back and hearing the guns go off and nobody else panicking, except for kind of me and my own brain and thinking, holy shit, these guys are like, everybody knew what spot to go onto the roof, how to, how to communicate, how to move and how to reload. And somebody else comes and takes your spot. And I was watching it all in real time. Like, I, this feels like a movie to me. Yeah. And then eventually one of the platoon sergeants was like, Catherine, get your ass on the fucking roof and lay down some fire. Yeah. And when I'm going up the, the ladder well, I think, oh, cool, I'm going to get a car. Like, that's the first thing that goes in my I'm, I'm going to get a combat action ribbon. Sweet. I think I might be the first <laughs> non-recon dude in Okinawa to get one. And so I'm like, I can't, in my brain as I'm going up, I can't wait to see my master guns in space with his little bitch ass stack when I get back. I'm going to have more medals than all these motherfuckers. Right. <laughs> so at this point, like I'm in my first firefight and I'm like, no, dude, I am, I am that dude. And so I, when I first started firing off rounds for the first time at people, I was like, maybe I am confident in this. I can do this. And I, I got the confidence in that that I needed. And it would serve me well, like being able to kind of slow things down a little bit. I honestly, I think combat can equate to what it's like to be an NFL quarterback as a rookie mm-hmm. where you've played a bunch, like mm-hmm. you've played at all different levels. And the first time that you go out to the NFL game, all they ever talk about is how fast the game is. But then when you've been in it for a little while, the speed of the game slows down. Mm-hmm. You can understand what the defenses are throwing at you and how to maneuver and act. And a part that was difficult as a dog handler is that you have rounds going off, mortars going off. You hear complex attacks with V-bits hitting different buildings around you. And you have to control an attack dog who's super nervous, who's also never been in this environment, and who wants with everything in their power to protect that. Mm-hmm. Like, this is this is my guy. I am protecting him at all costs. And so having to tell Saika to, like, chill out the, everybody around us is good and keeping him in a heel position and relax while I'm trying to fire, while I'm trying to listen and figure out where to go. It was incredibly stressful, like dealing with, with that added element because a lot of times they teach you that dogs can eventually start coming up leash and they'll get so nervous that they'll start attacking the handler because too many things are happening and the uh-huh. dog just kind of freaks out. So I have to keep my eyes on the enemy, look at to the, my Marine left or right, and then also not worry about getting attacked myself. And because none, if I got attacked and Psyche didn't want to let go, there's they would have had to shoot him. Like yeah. there's none, none of those guys were would have been equipped. And I thought in the middle of the first firefight, 
I've got to teach them how to get them off me if that if something like that happens. So then I'm training them in different techniques after those firefights are over. And it was just uh, it was very chaotic. And I, luckily, we changed how we did training where if you were going to deploy with somebody and you were going to work with them, you did some you did some pre training before, which should have been a no brainer. But I think your point is very apt, like the staff and CEOs the, that we worked with, they didn't have the experience either. So right. they were just kind of guessing what we would need to. Yeah. Yeah. Course, that's, it was that's, something. That's really interesting. So w what were the circumstances of your first firefight? Was that in Fallujah and you were inside a building at the time? And yep. So we had just taken over um, a house. We, we would, we had just taken over a house and they said that they, some of the guys that were more experienced are like, we have a bad feeling. And, and I was like, well, what is that bad feeling? They said, when we started rolling the city, we saw some women starting to leave to one side and children going the other way. And prayers are more frequent than they usually are over the loudspeakers. And it was things that I would have never noticed. Like, and if you hadn't been in that situation, why would you notice? Right. Like, that's not something that you would just pick up on if you didn't have any experience. And then it like they, and it wasn't like they were starting off slow. It was all of a sudden, just everything happened at one time. And we had originally gone into um, Karma to help secure the area because I don't know if you remember or not, there was in between, in between Fallujah and Ramadi was a little town called Karma. And the Marines had just finished really a big assault on Ramadi and trying to flush everybody out. At the same time, the same thing was happening in Fallujah proper. So a lot of the bad guys were really concentrated in karma at the time. And we spent a lot of the time there. And really all we were trying to do is round up everybody and just kind of drop in pamphlets. And they just were like, just go cause some chaos. And that was really the entire mission. Like when we would sit in the mission briefs, the entire mission was go attempt to draw people out and engage. That was it. Go mix it up with some bad actors. Yeah, and I was like, that seems not smart, but uh, I guess we'll do it. <laughs> like, it, it worked out, I guess. So how did the uh, how did your first firefight, how did that all resolve? So they they took out, it was actually an A-10 gun run. And so we had called and they had a pretty complex attack. And so my first firefight, it's about as good. It's like I would I would equate my first firefight as being like your first fuck is like a porn star where like, you, you're you not ready for it, but you get to see everything. It was like I got to do a little bit of combat anal by seeing an A-10 gunman my very first time. And it was awesome. Yeah. And I thought once the A-10 buzzed buzz by and I heard what an actual brrrr goes, yeah. Yeah. and then I saw like the aftermath. And I was like, oh, that's what they mean by pink mist. It was like all these different all these different terms that I had heard since boot camp, they were all starting to come into place. I'm like, oh, that's what they mean. And then I thought, I also thought, like, when I got back to my room, that's the reason why they make us pull the pit. So we understand what it's like when we're getting shot at, what the, the noise actually going over the round, what going over us actually sounds like. Mm -hmm. It sounds like a snap, not a gunshot. And mm -hmm. like figuring all those things out in real time was an eye opening experience. Yeah. And, and how long did it take you guys to take karma? Oh, I don't think we ever did, really. Like, it was it was very involved, and we spent a majority of the time there. I, I think, like, my – I did 
a bunch of different operations every single day. We were out and out and out and out. And I don't know, realistically, one, because I was so junior, I was a corporal at the time and I wasn't even with the recon. I didn't have like the clearances that a lot of those guys had. So I didn't get a lot of the information. But I, I can't imagine we accomplished a whole lot, really. I mean, the fighting season had died down whenever we were getting ready to leave. Um, I had gotten shot in July as well. Um, and whenever I, I declined to go home, I wanted to stay back and try to, to help. I had a round just go through my forearm. And I remember thinking, like, what, what was this all about? Even at that time, like, what are we really accomplishing here? And I think that was probably the most difficult aspect is seeing like it was the first time that I knew somebody well besides Dustin um, that got killed when I first got there it was the first time that people that I had operated with or people that I had trained with or even really been around were killed it was the first time that I had seen like another marine take an injury get shot through his shoulder and then somebody trying to pull him out of the way go behind the Humvee and get shot through the leg and I just remember thinking like what is this what are we accomplishing because it the way that the intel briefs were coming it's every time we killed somebody two more would pop up and we it was it just seemed like a very endless cycle yeah what when you were ripping or when you were like going there what was was your tour completely lined up with first recon's tour and what was the standard tour at that time how long were you guys expected to be in country seven months and it what like it was i i think they might have gotten into country 10 days after me, but it was very, very close, closely aligned. Um, and they, but they hit the ground running. They knew exactly what they were going to be doing. And I, like I said, I, I'm very thankful that, for those guys without those guys that there's no shot. I'm alive. Like they kept me from making terrible mistakes over and over again. And I, I would not be here without those dudes. They were incredibly capable and incredibly tactically proficient. Yeah. And looking back now, I think these recon dudes, some of them were 22 years old, Yeah, like 22, 21. Mm -hmm. Some of them joining fresh out of high school, being in corporal sergeant, leading teams at that age. And no, I have a 16 and a half year old now. And I try to think in six years, she could be doing that. Yeah. No, no <laughs> way. Like how they how they get Marine, young Marines, young service members in general to do the things that they are capable of doing is really remarkable. Yeah. And uh, how did Psycho, your dog, perform as far as his job, whether in, in as an attack role or in the, as a bomb sniffing dog? Incredibly. And I think that's what really gained their respect. Like one night, one of the first nights, it, it might have been only like our third mission. And we were trying to go in from, I think it was OP Muhammad. And we were trying, we had to go, uh, it might have been like 10 clicks or so, all walking patrol. And during that, time he found eight ieds on that one road wow and all of them we put a charge on it and blew it in place and we were able to go in and they said like this would have taken us overnight at least and we were able to get it done in a couple hours and so when he was finding he would find weapons caches that like if we were looking at different areas that were like weapons that were buried and he could even find rounds like if they had magazines stored together he could find those and most most explosive dogs won't do that his nose was so good even buried magazines buried he was able to find that's it. crazy going there was a car that went by once and it was like a white car and psycha he turned to it and shit like while he was standing i was like someone needs to check that vehicle because there was so like because 
The dogs don't know that they're looking for bombs. They don't know that they're looking for anything to hurt them. They think they're looking for a toy. Right. So when there's so much explosives in a car that goes by and it causes him to have that reaction, it's like he thinks that a toy R Us, Toys R Us is going by. Right. He's like, I need that fucking thing. That I bet there's some toys in that, Dad. Like, get that thing. Right. And so we stopped it, and then there was there. It was a it was a V-bit that was like on the way to Camp Illusion. Wow, that's crazy! Wow, mm-hmm. it was awesome. I mean that. I mean, just the logistics of that though. That sounds like such an incredibly dangerous situation that that thing clacks off because you know. I mean, you obviously have to control it from what from cover and and get the driver out or shoot the driver and then check it or whatever. I don't know. Yep. So we had people in the back and there was oversight of the road that we were going down and they had just let the, the Marines had let people go by so that we could go. Cause there was a, a line of like 10 cars or something. And we wanted them to go at night. We were like, go, 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 go. And one of them went by. I was like, no, not that one. That one, that one's got to stay. Yeah. And they ended up pulling the guy out at gunpoint and searching it. And they, and I went over and psycho like alerted on the trunk. I was like, yeah, there's something in here. We moved back and blew the truck up in place. Wow, that's amazing. That's incredible. And what was the story that you you mentioned to me a little bit today that there's an incident where he found a chlorine gas bomb? Yeah, so in, and we never got confirmed that there was chlorine in it, but we had one of the intel briefs that we got that there was this vehicle that had this, it was a dump truck that had blue barrels in the back and that they had observed and they had heard from different people that, it had chlorine in it, and they, they were going to try to make it a V-bit and just take out a bunch of folks. So it was me and two other folks. It was the company commander and a master sergeant. They didn't want to send any other, other Marines. They, everybody else had Overwatch, and it was just us three that went out. Well, Saika was the lead element of that, obviously, and he. we went through a couple different areas and checking out a couple different trucks. Well, as soon as we walk up on one truck, I mean, almost instantaneously, we hear the loudspeakers click on and we start to hear the prayer start. And I'm just like, oh, fuck, man, here we go. <laughs> and Saika is away. He's still probably 50 meters to 100 meters away from this truck. And he starts spinning in circles, like just super excited. And I call back and I say, this has got to be the truck. Saika is acting really crazy like this is not like him to do this whenever i'm telling him he's just he's like yapping and his teeth are chattering and you can just tell he's like overly excited that something's up so i radio back and they say no we have to get an actual positive response and as a dog handler you can't give a positive response until the dog gives a passive sit and i said this is it the dog is going bananas this is it and they said marine go check so i had to go close to the inside the wheel well where psycho put his nose up in there and they could see him sit down and i was like fucking run and we sprinted out of there and the master sergeant was like <laughs> it was it's probably my favorite deployment line i ever heard the master sergeant and i he was a smaller dude he was probably like five six five seven like a shorter dude for recon and he was laughing and i was and i was like what what's up top was like this is it and he's like no he's like I think the captain's going to get like a bronze star with a V and you'll get like a NAM, even though you're the one right by it. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> so we just like keep running. And then in my mind, I'm like, sweet, a NAM, that's pretty dope. Right, <laughs> like right. going back. So it was, <laughs> but it was a nice little levity moment. And he was right. The, he did, the captain ended up getting a bronze star with a V and I got a NAM. 
You you got an achievement medal, <laughs> of course. And he got a bronze star yeah. for valor. For, for yeah, over- I, got, I got a V two, but he he got the bronze star, even though he was a good a hundred meters behind. Oh, us. I didn't know that they put the the valor device on achievement medals. Is that something new? No, I, I think it's been around for a while, but it was. I always thought it was bullshit because people were still kind of surprised. But it was for me. I always say it's like you're a corporal, you're not getting anything higher. Isn't that ridiculous? Like, Stunning. Unless you got injured. It, it, yeah. it, I didn't get injured, so I was very happy. Like, at that point, with how they were giving out awards in the Marine Corps, like, even getting any personal right. award, yeah. I was, like, stoked. And I didn't think that was ever going to come just because that's not the way that we were doing business at right. the time. Right, right. So and I'm very honored to have it. Like, I'm, I'm very glad I had it. And... <laughs> So I mean, what when did what ended up coming of that after you identified or the dog identified that there was a bomb on this on this dump truck? So they said we had to go back into the house and that everybody else was in doing Overwatch, and they had to get approval um, for it to for us to leave or to blow it up, and they wanted to drop a five hundred pound bomb on it. Well, we had to wait. I think it was. I'm pretty positive it was for SecDef approval might have been lower because they there was the threat of the chlorine aspect of it so it had to have higher headquarters okay it well the first 500 pound bomb missed and then we had had to wait the second one missed and then they finally got it on the third one so the third one dropped and you could see there was a secondary explosion so it confirmed the fact that there was like the what we had said was in there but there was no evidence that, that there was any chlorine um at the time, but we had to stay. It took, I, I'm almost positive. My timeline gets kind of fucked up now, but I'm almost positive. We had to stay in place for at least 48 hours waiting for this approval. And it was, it was hellish because you didn't know right. if it did have chlorine, they could trigger it. And we were definitely inside. I mean, our building, whenever they dropped the first 500 pound bomb, every single window in that building shattered. And it was, that was, and we almost had to, actually life flight psych out because he was bleeding from the ears like after oh, oh, wow. from 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 the from the blast and they were like do you think you need to go and i was about five minutes from saying he needs to be medevaced out but luckily the bleeding stopped i got to be on the radio with the vet and they like gave me what i should check for and everything like that and he was like no he should be okay you guys are coming home in two days you should be fine did he uh do you feel like in those two days did you notice if it affected his hearing or his ability to comprehend i think not his hearing his hearing was fine i do think he had like concussed there's times that he looked confused when he wouldn't normally look confused uh-huh. there was times that he was missing um because i used to always carry a brick of c4 on my vest so i could do like a drop aid to keep him going because if you're doing like a three hour, four hour patrol and the dog doesn't find anything. It's kind of like having a kid where you never let them win. They're just going to get tired of it and they're not going to do it anymore. So you have to let them win every now and then. Yeah. Did, uh, did the dog ever start displaying like any signs of PTSD? Cause I remember we interviewed uh, Javier Mackey, who's a third group dog handler and he, he described getting to Bagram in Afghanistan and the dog would not get off the fucking ramp of the aircraft. Like no matter what yeah. he did, the dog, mm-hmm. because it wasn't the dog's first rodeo either. And it was just like, nope, nope, not doing it. Yeah, we definitely experienced that a lot. Psycho luckily was not too bad. Like he was, he loved me. Like I, my every move was like his favorite thing that's ever been done in the world. Like he just yeah. loved it. So if I spent extra time with him and like let him get in my sleeping bag and like comforted him, yeah. he was he was 
pretty good. Um, but there definitely is a lot of dogs that had like PTSD type symptoms. And there was some that after they came back from very intense deployments, just flat out wouldn't work anymore. Like yeah. they, because they don't know, but these dogs are really smart. So it's like, they put it together. Like I, you, you tricked me, you son of a bitch. Like yeah. you, I thought we were just looking for a toy. Yeah. <laughs> like, you yeah. tricked me, you best. Yeah. <laughs> these toys are no fun. Yeah. Yeah. I don't yeah. want to play that game. Yeah. Let's play something else. Uh, now, Malinois, I mean, are, uh, you know, they, they have, they can be temperamental, right? I mean, they can be sort of like Akitas or, or other sort of aggressive dogs. And I know some like handlers and some dogs integrate well with teams where you, you know, anybody can throw the ball or whatever. And others, the, the dogs tend to be more standoffish with anybody other than their handler. Is that, is that sort of how the dog is raised and conditioned or is that based on the personality of the dog? basic temperament like of each dog is so different like Saika I never really worried about Saika being around the other Marines Saika was essentially mm -hmm. like a service like a emotional support dog in a lot of the rooms that we were at and after a while he knew all those guys too because he was with them all the time and I would interact with them so it was cool towards the about halfway point I used to at the beginning of the deployment I would keep him on me at all times like right. if I was if I was going to the bathroom, if I was going outside, if I was smoking cigarette, he was with me all the time, no matter where I was at. Well, after a while, you can kind of like acclimate him to the other people. And then eventually it got to we would take a house. If I knew we were going to be there a while, I would just even click him off leash and let him roam around and hang out with the other Marines. And think about how happy that would make you on a deployment. Right. If you get to hang out and pet a dog, it feels like you're it almost normalizes the situation right. for the people that are there too very calming for them and that was cool to watch people would be playing spades or whatever and psyche just like chilling in the middle of them like a house pet yeah 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 i can imagine how great that was for the marines you know oh they never wanted me to leave after that like yeah. they were like oh this dude's fucking awesome you could stay yeah <laughs> and it's interesting too because you know when the dog you know even though it's a working dog when it becomes almost like I don't want to say a communal pet. It becomes a, an active member of the team, like yeah. a, a team member with benefits, as it were. Um, they like, were pissed when I told them that get dogs getting medals is a myth. It's not an actual thing. Yeah. Because they wanted to write him up for an award, too. I was like, well, you can do it, but it's a waste of time because it's not an actual thing. It'd be like giving an award to an M4. Like, you just don't do it. Yeah. And and people don't realize how, like, if if a dog is lost in service how how strongly that affects the team it's like losing a team member it is it is one of my best friend in the marine corps his name is chris diaz he was he was killed in afghanistan and the attachment to the dogs doesn't just extend to the marines there it also extends back to the marines family at home and they view that as like a part of their marine and chris's family luckily was able to adopt his dog eventually oh wow and that's great and that kind of thing really helped out a lot of the family. And I was surprised because the dog was very, very young and the DOD eventually signed off and they're like, no, this, this dog needs to go with this family. And we worked really hard in making that. That's actually legislation. Now it's policy that if a dog gets killed, if a handler gets killed and the dog doesn't and the dog is able to be adopted because some of them just can't, some right. of them are yeah. so aggressive that they, 
it would be unwise to put them with a family that doesn't have a handler in it. Right. But if they could be adopted and they could have some of the aggression trained out of them, then they could go home with the family. And it made a world of difference to several families. Wow. Now, once once some once you bond with a dog like that, I mean, and let's say you get deployed somewhere else or whatever, what happens? Does a dog go to a different handler? Do they adjust? Do they? Yeah, they do. So when I came back um, to Okinawa, Stika was property of Okinawa. So when I got back, I got transferred to Quantico and I had to drop him is what we would call it. I had to drop him as his handler and he got another handler. And that process sucks, man. Like in like spending an appointment with a dog and bonding, especially like getting injured. And when I went to the hospital, when, like whenever they flew me into Fallujah Surgical and then on afterwards, uh, Psycho was not letting anybody near me. He was like, absolutely fucking not. Nobody's coming near my dad. I will kill you if yeah. you try to get close. We had to wait. Surgery, my surgery was delayed because I had to wait for another handler to come get him like so that because he couldn't the only place i could tie him i couldn't move around very well i tied him to the bed and I, we they made a, a contact and one of the other handlers came and they just came with the sleeve to get bit and they just let him bite him and then they put the leash on him and brought him back to a oh, kennel man. that they had wow so it, it was brutal and, <laughs> and the the marine space that had to come get him because how pissed psycho was was like is he gonna get me dude i was like he might <laughs> he might yeah that's that's amazing um let's go back i mean or because i want to we want to ask about like that firefight where you did get injured but were there other any other significant moments that led up to that point any memorable things yeah there, i mean it was just um, it almost honest to god because we are walking the same streets all the time and all that how it all kind of meshes together for me now yeah. like all yeah. the different memories are kind of slopped in one Fallujah soup I guess yeah um, and how I how I view things but we had we had did a patrol that was probably the longest walking patrol that I've actually done like in and real combat I definitely is and we got to a house we kicked everybody out of the house and we had just like bedded down and I was getting ready to sleep for the first time it was the longest psych I had ever worked and the dude was smoked like you could just tell I can't do anymore. Like I, and they do get to a point of exhaustion where these dogs will work to the point of damn near death where they won't stop. If you, if you keep them going the right way. Well, as soon as I laid down, I heard a mortar round hit the roof and then it just, everything completely opened up. And it was the first time that I'd been in a firefight that was happening early in the morning. And it was different because typically it was happen they were happening either at the evening when you had a little bit more time to gauge. Well, it was early morning, probably 5.30, maybe 6. And we hadn't had the time to be able to look out and see what the terrain was that we were dealing with. All we could see was nighttime. So we had no idea any of the natural barriers. Well, they're in the canal system that is that was in Karma, these guys had essentially low crawled and set up different um, machine guns and they set up to, it was a very complex attack and they were as prepared for legitimate combat of any firefight that I was in 
And as soon as one shot, as soon as the first mortar round hit, it was like all hell broke loose and everything happened at the same time. I was on the bottom floor because I was on the first sleep shift with my dog and I instantly stood up. And when I stood up, a round came through the wall, either the wall or the window and hit me. And I had no idea what to do at that point because I hadn't been trained with them on like how what to do if you get hit or anything like that and i remember trying to walk one way and got spun around like completely spun around and i thought that a piece of like brick wall or mud wall or whatever like had flown off and hit me and then i looked down and i could damn near see through like the hole in my arm and i was like oh fuck me man <laughs> and so i just did like what movies i was like corman like corman i'm yeah. it and they're like the corman comes down he's like this recon doc that's like sniper qualified and the corman had like more qualifications than anybody else in the platoon and he's like you're gonna be fine uh just put like the tourniquet on not too tight just a little bit below your um elbow don't do it real tight just do it like 50 percent of the way and i'll come get you whenever we're done and I was like, well, what do you want me to do? He's like, go shoot, dummy. Like, we're yeah. still getting attacked. And so he's like screaming at me and I'm going back up to the roof and then everything dies down. And I'm sitting underneath this stairwell after everything's kind of subsided and um, we're still getting mortar rounds, but most of the bad actors had been killed already. And I'm sitting underneath there and I always thought like what would I be what would I think in this type of situation and it really was the old movie lines like I thought about am I going to lose my arm is my daughter going to be embarrassed that I'm walking in her into high school when I don't have an arm because at that time you're it was 2006 2007 and you're thinking this war nobody would have thought that it just ended this year right, right? like right. you're thinking it's going to be over and way out of the consciousness of america by that time right so i'm thinking is she going to be embarrassed of me and like right. all those different thoughts are going through my head and i'm thinking did i do something wrong like what why did i stand up in the area that i did why didn't i low crawl and immediately right away i started like monday morning quarterbacking all of my actions about what i did wrong and how am I going to deal with this for the rest of my life? And it was a very bizarre, it was probably no more than 45 minutes in reality, but it felt like eternity. It felt like a month that I was sitting underneath there. You know, it's funny. It's so funny that you say that because I think that for a lot of people, that sounds really, you know, really weird. You're going to, uh, you're thinking about your daughter, like, you know, what she, what she's going to, is she going to be embarrassed because you don't have an arm? I mean, I remember I broke my back and thought that I was paralyzed, uh, in Crete. And my, and one of my first thoughts is, well, I guess I'm going to have to be a writer because I don't know what else to do. Like, like right. these, these, you know, once like you're over the initial shock of it, then mm -hmm. your mind, your, your mind automatically goes to what's the rest of my life look like with this. In this and it might be to protect yourself from that shock, right? Like yeah. starting to cognitively process things, like even in that moment, like you, you might be going through. And there, so many people I've thought that I've talked to that have the similar experiences of getting injured. They're like, yeah, dude, that's exactly what I thought. Like, this is, is this going to be, how bad is this going to be? One, once you realize I, I knew I wasn't going to die. I was right. like, I'm not going to die from this. Right. I'm going to be fine but I might be different. And right. how am I going to react? Am I going to be able to stay in? Am I going to be, do I have to go get a different career? I don't want my time to end early. I don't want to leave my Marines that I'm still 
when we're not actively doing operations. Yeah. I was like the chief trainer for the for the dogs, the rest of the dogs that were in the Fallujah area because I had more experience. So I was teaching them based on what I had learned. And I was like, I don't want to leave these folks behind either. Like, right. I don't want to go to Germany. Like all those thoughts are going through your head. Like, I don't want to go to Germany. I didn't have to go to Germany. Like all I didn't lose an arm. And you just realize like everything turns into worst case scenario. Right. But you're still on the ground and you still kind of have to pull yourself back together in that moment. And that was I feel like that moment of sitting underneath the stairwell really shaped who I was going to be for the remainder of my life. Yeah. Where I was able to calmly calm my brain, look at the situation that I have and realize I'm going to be okay. And I go back when I have difficult situations now, or when I had difficult situations, when I first got out, I thought, you made it from underneath the stairwell. You're doing okay. Like if you could do okay in that situation, the thing that you're dealing with now is going to calm down. It's going to slow down for you and you're going to be okay. Yeah. It's what you say also, and we've heard it before on this show. It's so common when, when people get injured, their thing is, I don't want to let my guys down. I don't want to mm -hmm. abandon my team. You know, I don't. And you know, and that whole thought of even, you know, you get shot, you get blown up or whatever. And when you're forced to medevac and everything, like a lot of guys on those med, you know, those freedom flights back to Germany or whatever, it, they're, it's not like, oh, I'm going home. It's not like I think a lot of guys were in Vietnam or whatever, like, oh, you know, I got the golden ticket or whatever. They're like, fuck, you know, I'm like leaving my yeah. guys behind and they're racked with guilt over something they have no control over because of our person it's our the personality of the warfighter right like your your personality is i am going to complete whatever the fuck i set out to complete and being told situations that are outside of your control that you're not going to complete it i told him if you try to make me leave this theater before the rest of the dog handlers do you're going to have to fucking put me on somebody is going to have to pick me up in cuffs and put me on the bird i'm not leaving and they because they wanted me to leave and i ended up being able to stay and help train and uh like basically do fob hopping to different yeah. areas around and teach people about my experiences and what I had gone through. And luckily it was just because it was not a bad injury and I was going to be able to recover in like a month or two and be totally fine. It was just infection that they were worried about. I mean, I, they say the million dollar wound legitimately through yeah. the radial and ulna of my forearm is where it went through. Wow. And there was a, like a little nick of bone that was on um, that the, <laughs> that the bullet actually like rounded out. And that that was it. Wow. wow. Um, yeah. So how did the rest of that fire... ran a 300 PFT eight weeks later? <laughs> That's amazing. I mean, that really is. <laughs> what, what was the rest of that firefight like? then? so you do kind of a half tourniquet and you get out from I, the stairs. Honestly, I don't remember yeah. like that. Like uh, I try to re recreate. And honestly, I think if I didn't do podcasts and I didn't do my show or it gets brought up every now and then, I'm not sure how actual hazy the memories would be at this point because i try to think about other operations like when when i talk to buddies that were there with me or that heard stories about things that i that i did so much of it is gone like yeah. i just don't have memories of it and i'm sure you guys deal with that too like where yeah. one of your buddies will bring up a story and like honest to god dude i don't fuck, i don't remember that like, yeah i don't remember that happening yeah. No, Jeff, I, it's exactly like that for me. I mean, people are like, Oh, you know, tell us about this. I'm like, I honestly don't remember. It's like, like you say, it's a big soup. 
You know, yeah. like, there are some significant memories or some sig significant moments, but even those aren't 100% accurate when I like talk to people about them. Uh, and mine are bit, my memories are more accurate when I think about other traumas that I saw from people that weren't me. Right. You know, like my own personal stuff. And I, my wife, my wife is an experimental psychologist and she was like, well, that's your brain protecting you from yourself. Yeah. And I said, like I, my psychologist, whenever I talked to her, when it was mostly about PTSD stuff, I was like, look, it's, it's very rarely I'll have a dream about what happens to me. Right. It was, it's much more about what I saw happen to a buddy or to a friend or what their experiences were for me, like my own stuff. I could easily put that aside. I think my brain did it automatically, but my most traumatic memories are easily what happened to other people. Yeah. Yeah. The, co the combat medics have a lot of issues with that, you know, because they feel like this person's life is in my hands and everything I do or don't do, it's my fault. Right. You know? Yeah. And mm -hmm. they, they really struggle with yeah. some of that stuff. So you, you get injured and, and the firefight resolves. Um, and so what happens from that point? So when it's, when it's over, we like, because you know, whenever there's mortar rounds dropping, it's dangerous for the helicopters to come and to get you and things like that. So we had to wait uh, a, a pretty decent amount of time. I have no idea how long it is now, but it felt like fucking forever at yeah. the time. Yeah. And they're like, well, we got to go. And I said, well, they said, leave the dog here. I was like, well, that's, that's just absolutely not going to happen. Psyche is going to come with me. So me and Psyche get on the bird together. And there's another dude that in the middle of the firefight, they had fired off so many rounds from the machine gun from the M2 he had to change his barrel, but they hadn't got everything directly in place yet. He had to change the barrel. He did it without a glove. Oh my and, God. What? And you could see oh his, God. you could see the bones in like his hand, but they had it like kind of wrapped up and they, you go like on the bird next to it. Like which one he got shot. I'm like, honestly, I think he's way worse than me. Like, yeah. he, I'm okay. I think I'm stable. Like check this dude out. And he ended up having to get like bone grafts and shit and like grafts on his skin to make sure that he was okay. Did, did he, did he accomplish that? Did he actually get the barrel change or? I'm not sure if he did. And I don't think he even knew. I think he kind of like blacked out mentally too. Cause sure. we were in the hospital together and I was like, how did it happen? He's like, I reached down and grabbed the barrel. He didn't say he changed it. He just said he reached down and grabbed the barrel. Nice. And I think because it was, I understood like at the moment, but at the same time, I'm like, dude, you know, they're fucking hot. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. It's hot. When, when that initial, when that round hit the roof, cause if, it, if you were on the ground floor sleeping, I'm sure you guys had security up on the roof. Did anybody get yes. injured from that mortar round? No, somehow it like all the shrapnel missed everybody that was up there. There was only it was only a small team, so there was only six of us in the house. Um, but luckily, they're far enough away, or maybe it just nicked the side of it or something like that. I'm not exactly sure how it hit. Yeah. But as soon as I mean, if when you hear one mortar, you know exactly what a mortar round sounds yeah. like going off. And I knew it hit the house, and I don't know. I still don't know where on the roof it hit or anything like that. It could have hit the side of the house or something like that. Yeah. But it sounded like it was above us. Yeah. So they uh, they patched you up, and you were given the opportunity to stay in country, working on training and, and mentoring some of the other guys who were coming in. Um, what was sort of the future for you in the Marine Corps from that point forward? Well, it was odd. 
um, because I had just won a combat meritorious sergeant board based on the actions that got me the NAM. And the colonel that was my colonel, not the recon, because my overall command was still like the MP company. Right. They were like, we're not going to give you this meritorious promotion because we feel like you're going to be medically separated whenever you come back. Like whenever you go back home, you're going to be medically separated. Um, because the initial report was that I, and I couldn't feel my hand like below my um, middle finger. Yeah. And they're like, if you can't shoot, then you can't be a Marine. You're going to get medically retired. And they don't want you like, hold on. Do they not want your medical retirement to be at a sergeant? I mean, are they being like, do they they want- said it didn't wouldn't matter. They said because of how I would get retired, like through the VA system, it wouldn't have mattered, um, like what rank was on it. But I was like, it does matter to me. When the, the colonel and sergeant major told me while I was still in the hospital that I wasn't getting meritoriously promoted anymore. Oh, that chaps my hide. <laughs> me too, dude, because I ended up staying in. I didn't have to get out. Oh. Um, and I, I ended up staying in longer. And um, I did, I think that was 2007. I, I ended up staying an additional six years. Wow. Um, yeah, sorry. I, I interrupted that. I just, that chaps my hide when stuff like that happens. But anyway, so you didn't get that. You did, they, they told you you weren't going to get that. And then please continue. And that was basically it. I mean, I did the I did the fob hopping and going around and teaching everybody and then we we went home and I had found out uh, while I was still in the hospital that my ex-wife cheated on me with my gunny from back in Okinawa. So I knew I had to recover physically. I that, had to recover that rib, mentally. That ribbonless bitch. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Oh. And and I was I had to prepare myself for a divorce. And so then it was at that moment I knew everything that I had joined the Marine Corps for, everything was just going to be wildly different. And one, like my religious views changed while I was in Iraq. Iraq was probably the most influential part of my the development of my, really, I guess, my philosophy on life. And I remember walking through the different towns and seeing all the kids and knowing what I had studied in seminary and what I had thought my entire life. And I'm like, so you're telling me that this little kid that's six years old was born in Iraq of no chance of his own is going to go to hell just because he's born here and right. there's no missionaries here to tell him about Jesus. Right. Like that, that does not seem right. right. And so I kind of like stepped away from that and it changed my whole philosophy. And then also like doing everything that I had thought would get me successes did not. Like I was a virgin except the only person I had ever slept with was my wife at the time. And I had, try to be the best person I possibly could. And like, how are all these terrible things happening to me right. when I'm try? I tried to do everything the exact right way of what I was supposed mm-hmm. to do. Well, I ended up going back to Japan and then I, I transferred out of there and went to Quantico and really because Quantico was another spot like Okinawa, like all the Marines were still deploying from Lejeune and Pendleton primarily. Mm-hmm. And I was at Quantico and there wasn't a whole lot of combat experience on Quantico either. So the way that I was treated when I got to the unit, I was a sergeant then, like whenever I got there, I I picked it up normally and they respected me and put me in a training position like the training NCO, which is usually reserved for like a junior gunnery sergeant or a senior staff sergeant. I was a very junior sergeant and they put me in the role because I had actual experience that I could teach. And they let me, and I'm forever grateful to the, the company commander there and the company first sergeant who gave me 
responsibilities that were well outside my rank and responsibility and where I was able to be, I was a staff sergeant in the Marine Corps in less than six years in. And wow. for and for MPs, that was like unheard of. The average time is 11 years. Yeah. And I, so I, I got meritoriously promoted to staff sergeant Wow. and um, like my colonels. And I'm telling you all this, not to suck my own dick. It's going somewhere in a minute. <laughs> so like my colonel said that I was the best enlisted Marine that he's ever been around in 28 years of service. And then I went on to, and I was battling demons and i didn't realize it at the time i was battling everything that was going on because i was so bitter about everything that happened to me and with my ex-wife and how the deployment went down and i didn't get to finish the way that i want wanted to i went on to lackland i was drinking way too much i was constantly boozing i was constantly i had my entire persona had been being this the marine of marines mm -hmm. and being as ruthless as a staff and ceo as i can to the point where now when my old marines listen to my podcast they're like dude we can't even believe this is the same person like right. you weren't funny at all you were just an asshole yeah. and a dick constantly well i didn't get the help that i needed and i ended up assaulting a police officer when i was in san antonio and i woke up after going to the river i woke up in a jail cell and I thought, oh, I got a DUI, I'm fucked. Yeah. And they woke me up to go to booking and they're like, well, you're here, you're charged with aggravated assault on a police officer. And I was like, oh, fuck. Like right. I had no recollection of what happened at all. And luckily my command at the time at Lackland had sent me to mental health screening and they were processing me out already like for medical retirement for PTSD and traumatic brain injury wow. because I had been in some explosions and things like that too. And so I already had it in the works and my, my commander there was, he, he changed the course of my life because when he reached out to his colonel, they said, process them out because I don't like in the Marine Corps, if you get charged with a felony, they can kick you out in 10 days, like right. just on a charge. And my commander said, no, we're not going to do that. He's in the process of getting treatment for PTSD. They're going to medically retire him. We want to stick this out. And he actually called the prosecutor and was like, please just let him retire. So he gets benefits and gets to go to the VA and get treatment and things like that. And it really made me very introspective on how quickly everything in your life could fall apart. Cause I went from being incredibly respected at work to being like a Marines Marine to my family had to pay a ton of money to get me out of jail. Like I had a $150,000 bond. I had to um, pay lawyers. I went from saving all my deployment money, doing all that different stuff to my wife and kid, my new wife and kid were eating hot dogs every single night and how I was going to bounce back. And I, I had to make a decision, like, am I going to let this terrible event define me? Right. Is this going to be who I am? Because people that had respected me, I would see them talking online like, oh, he's a piece of shit. He was fake. He was never all these different things. And I thought my reputation and everything that I have worked for is completely gone. And not to mention, I hurt somebody else. Like, right. and that wasn't my, my intention at all. Like, I, I would never have done that in a right state of mind. Right. And so I, I thought I can't just let, and with a felony charge, you can't get a job at fucking mcdonald's man right. like you can't do anything i had no other skill set except for being 
a Marine or being a pastor, which one could I do with those with a felony charge? Right. Neither. <laughs> like, like I'm, I'm not going to be able to, like everybody else that was a dog can get out, you go work for Blackwater, you go work for whoever and do like contracting, make good money. I had none of those options at my disposal, no skills, no nothing. So I luckily, because the commander let me retire, get my medical retirement and able to use my VA benefits, I went to school and I really started to go to counseling and therapy a lot more. I met with a neuropsychologist who changed the course of my life and her name is Dr. Willis and told me I have to put everything aside. It's going to feel impossible for years. It's going to feel impossible. And it did. And I went back to school, finished school, and I was just really bored at school. I wasn't stimulated. I mean, going from doing all that kind of stuff to going to UTSA, which wasn't a difficult school for me, uh, majored in communications. I just didn't, I just needed the money. And it was the GI Bill money that made me go do it. Cause I was like, even if I graduate, <laughs> who's going to hire me? I have a felony. Like I, so, well, so I, I want to back up just a little bit because okay. so your, so they were your command. Well, first off, it's, it's great that your command fought for you because, hmm. because like you say, that's like, rare too. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, so the prosecutor did they hold off and allow you to get yes but they did charge you still though they didn't drop the they charges. did no and in fact like i i got 10 years of probation and um so i i had to do all those different things like drug test and uh, paying the probation and doing all those different things that goes along with it but they did allow me, they held off, like they kept deferring, deferring, deferring until my retirement went in. Then my attorney contacted me, like he got retired, we'll go and face the music now. So the, and, so the prosecutors were pretty cool too, because they didn't have to do that. No, they didn't. They could have, they could have definitely pushed it through. And yeah. I, honest to God, if I didn't have like all those different character statements before like all of our fitness reports and things like that your oers and oars or whatever you call them in the different branches of service if i didn't have those to like show like i'm i'm a good person like this was a huge mistake obviously i know it was a mistake but if i didn't have all those character assessments before i i would probably still be in prison i mean when they when they woke me up the charges were five to 99 because yeah. it's a class one felony to right. do that obviously right. And, and did you not I get was, any prison time? I mean, did they sort of go lenient on you because of the PTSD and stuff like that? They did. I had to do 45 days in uh, county jail, uh, but never went, never had to go to prison. And so after I started going back to school and all that stuff was settled, all the different legal stuff was settled, I just started thinking, well, what can I possibly do? Maybe I could write because I was always a decent writer and like I have to start at least attempting to move past this in like a fiscal way. And because the GI bill eventually runs out and you know, I can't live on that thing forever. So I just started tweeting a bunch. Like I would tweet about sports and use a pseudo name that I had and like, which is chaps. And my real name is Matthew Cothran. And I went by chaps McNeely, which is some, what some of my friends would have called me when I was in the, in the Marine Corps anyways, uh, as like a nickname. And I went with that online. And after I was done with school, I had started a podcast in my closet talking into a shoebox with a little lapel mic and was just telling essentially like family jokes and like dick jokes and shit. And somebody tagged my boss now and they were like, this dude's really funny. You should check him out. And he offered me a job. And 
he didn't know any of my background or anything like that. And I told him he hired me in the middle of July. I got shot on July 31st of 2007. And I said, I know you probably don't understand this, but my live day is July 31st. I would like to make the, cause at that point I had like four, I had like 40,000 followers on Twitter. And I was like, I, I want to make the announcement on my live day. It would be a very big thing. He's like, well, what's an alive day? And I was like, it was the day that I was wounded in combat. He's like, what the fuck? You're, I, I didn't know that you were even in the service or anything like that. And so he was like, of course, like that's fine. And so it was almost like everything had gone full circle. I thought that he was just going to let me write three or four articles a month and do like a little bit of contributing, but it ended up being a full-time gig. And now fast forward five and a half years later, I've been here for five and a half years. And the things that I went through with both combat deployment and getting shot and getting arrested has allowed me to be the person that I am in this company and have the voice that I do now and be very, very active in trying to get people mental health. In fact, to the point where recently we had a contract with, um, we just announced it about two weeks ago with uh, a company called BetterHelp, which is an online therapy organization. And I got them as part of our um, relationship that they are going to pay for the free therapy of every single gold star family that is involved in the global war on terrorism. Wow. Chaps, that's so amazing, that, man. That yeah. So it's, and I don't think that that mental health aspect would have been an approach for me. So I look back on it and back into the religious term is an absolute blessing. I was able to, through a couple of lucky breaks along the way, reestablish myself as who I am as a person and make a positive impact on, on people's lives and say that you can be going through storms in many different ways. But I am a firm believer in what the late Colin Powell said, that you have to bloom where you're planted. There's been times in my life where I have been planted in the streets of Fallujah and I had to bloom with recon, even though I didn't know what I was doing. After I got arrested, I had to bloom again. And I thought that my flower was dead at that moment. But luckily I was able to catch some breaks along the way. And now I'm in a position where my voice can help influence some of the things that happens in the veteran community. And I am beyond grateful to have that. Chaps, I, I wanna ask you about that because I, I mean, for, I think there's a great personal lesson in there because I imagine one, you know, you had the post-traumatic stress, but you also had that, uh, you know, just, you were disappointed with the way things ended. You, you, mm -hmm. you know, and then you have, then you have this assault. You don't even remember. It's like, you, you didn't even get a choice in that in a way you were drunk. You did this thing and you wake up one day and, and it feels like your life is over. And right. then people step in, they intercede, but you still have jail. You still have a felony. You have a wife, you have a, a child. How do you see your way out of that? Like, how do you, how do you not just give up? I didn't see my way. It wasn't until the opportunity to really kind of step all the way out. And I remember when I got the job here, when I, and I told my boss here, I, I told him straight up, like, before you hire me, I want you to know, I go by a pseudonym. I got arrested. I had aggravated assault on a police officer. And he was like, we all make mistakes. He was like, we've seen what you can do. I know like your background story. Now we're still going to give you a shot. And that was really the pulling myself up by the bootstraps. He did it for me and giving me the opportunity and not being like really judgmental and thinking that 
at my worst moment, which admittedly was a terrible, terrible moment, worse than most people have at their worst moment. Yeah. At my worst moment, that's not a reflection of who I am. It was a, re- a reflection of what I was going through right. at the time. And I've been able to, through the help of many hours of psychology, our psychologist and, and dealing with some of those things, step out of that and become the person who, once again, it took me a long time to even admit it that I'm proud of who I am because that was the hardest part. I wanted to, when I was in, I wanted to be the Sergeant Major of the Marine Corps. Like when I went to any interview or doing anything, I was like, I'm going to be the Sergeant Major of the Marine Corps. One. It was no longer about being a pastor. It was, I have the skill set. I'm good enough to do this. This is what I'm going to do. I took the lessons that I learned from recon. And that's why I asked you today, did you ever have imposter syndrome? Because I did. Like right. I, I asked you on our show if we, if you had imposter syndrome. And that's the reason why I did. And there's still times that I do because those, those, mental demons that you battle with having something like a felony that people on the internet know about and they'll bring it up occasionally. Like even when I announced the better help deal, somebody was like, yeah, but you're still a fucking felon. And in that moment, <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, that's well, that, yeah. Yeah. yeah it, 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 that's, that's just so crazy to me how, and I want to fire back. Like, what the fuck are you doing for the yeah. better community? You piece of shit. And yeah. I'm just like, Oh, okay. Well, yeah. Whatever. Yeah. I, it, it, yeah. So you t- you mentioned briefly. Did you say neuropsychologist? Neuro- neuropsychologist. Yes. Can you tell us? You said that she helped you tremendously. Can you tell us a little bit, like, what that looked like? Well, because when I was going back to school, and and thanks for bringing that up, because I had I do I have traumatic brain injury as well, and so my short term memory used to be phenomenal, like to the point where, oh, I won't. I don't know if I could ever say photographic, but I could remember everything. That was a, another way I excelled, is because doctrine books like marine corps orders i had them all memorized and i could just spout them spout off orders over and over and over again i got to school and was trying to use the same brain that i had always had i failed spanish twice like i failed like and having foreign language was a requirement in my school and i could not do it so not only did i have the legal stuff but i also felt like i wasn't the person that I knew. Like I felt stupid, like going from being, I could not ever study and get straight A's in school or A's and B's without even opening up a book to trying my hardest and failing. It just wasn't something that I, I was, I wasn't used to failure and I didn't know how to deal with it. And the way that she broke down, these aren't failures, they're obstacles. Like you, you have to figure out how to get over this obstacle. Like the first time that you do I wasn't a expert shot the first time I shot a rifle like that wasn't I didn't have that skill set, but I had to work on it to get better. And eventually I was I wasn't a 300 PFT year at first that I had to work at it. She's like, this is just another one of those things. You're going to have to learn how to cope and deal with things and shift the way that you're thinking about your abilities. And you're still very capable. You're still a smart person. You're still all these things you are the biggest obstacle in your own recovery because you keep thinking these negative things about yourself and having that pep talk from somebody over and over again and being like, well, these are the things that you're doing now. You're a great dad. We've talked to your wife. She says, you're a great husband. You love her. You love your family. You take care of all these different things at your core. You're still the good person. You've got to stop thinking that you aren't. Mm -hmm. And it really changed my life. That's, that's amazing. Talk to us about Zero Block 30. Um, you told us a little bit about how it's its origins and then getting picked up uh, by Barstool Sports. How has it evolved 
And also, you have a, a co-host. It's a team effort with you as well. How did Kate enter the picture? How did all that work out? Yeah, so when I first started here, um, there's a the biggest sports podcast in the world. Part of my take is hosted by Barcelona Sports too. And those guys that do that are incredibly talented. Well, when I got hired here, that's what I did. I did sports satire. And I walked into the building and I see two of the best people that are doing that. It, it would essentially like be trying to start being the military guy when Chesty Puller and fucking uh, Audie Murphy are on staff. Like you just don't do it. Like, not, a, not a wise move. Um, so I was like, I don't want to do that. And I thought, well, maybe I'll do this military thing. And I originally was just going to do it where I was asking different military folks, kind of like what you guys did, but I was going to do it with pokes because a lot of people, they look at, like, there are so many folks that constantly tell stories about um, the special operators and like, cause that's sex. You're not making a movie about a supply guy. Like right. that's just not what's going down. Yeah, right. And, but I wanted to talk about like the average person in the military, like what, cause that's a majority, 95% of the military is not special operators. Right. And so I wanted to tell their stories and what they had gone through. And one of the people that reached out was my first co-host and he's still on as well. You didn't get a, a chance to meet him. He was doing something else. His name was Connor. It still is. He's not dead. He's you know. <laughs> so Connor played quarterback at West Point. He uh, got out as a captain. And so we our first conversation was about guns. And we had a, a, a talk about gun control and what we thought that looked like. He's more conservative and I tend to be more liberal on things. And so we had conversations and people really enjoyed the fact that we could have differing opinions, but not hate each other at the end of the hour, right. where we talked about what we thought was reasonable, what we thought was not reasonable. And that was kind of the show at the beginning and also me telling like stupid stories about boot camp and shit like that to keep people laughing and interesting and about the serious conversations that we would have. And then we had done it for about a year. It was just Connor and I for about a year and a half, maybe even close to two years. And then we brought in Kate and I, Kate's story is really interesting because I used to write a blog series called, is this trying to get the pipe? Which means like, is, are, are you trying to fuck this? And like the, the <laughs> I got, there was this pumpkin that had like a cut in it and it looked like a vagina. And I, I wrote anything that looked like a vagina. I would write a blog about why I would fuck that pumpkin or why I would have <laughs> fucked this piece of raw chicken or whatever. Well, she posted this, she worked at duffel blog, which is like the onion for military. Yeah and posted this picture of a calzone. She had no idea who I was, but the calzone was like bubbling on the inside and there was a pepperoni in the spot that would be like where the clit's at. And she had other people that were like mutual followers that kept tagging me over and over again <laughs> in this picture. That's hilarious. And I looked at the picture and I was like, I need to blog this. This fits very well into my series. So Into I her like, do you mind if I, right. I was like, do you mind if I do this? And I saw that she was a Marine and she was like, sure. She's like, I also write at Duffel Blog. And I'd sent her like the different blogs, like not that I was trying to be creepy. I'm like, it's not just yours. Like I write about everything, which probably ended up being more creepy than not. Right, right. <laughs> and so she, I asked her, I was like, she, do you want to come on the show and talk about your journey and writing for Duffel Blog and things like that? And we really hit it off well. And I said, well, why don't you leave Duffel Blog, come join my team, and you could be like our social media person and do Twitter and do Instagram and whatever you find interesting. Well, her voice grew and grew and grew, and eventually I asked her to be our co-host. And then we ended up hosting um, a show on SiriusXM together and having a different podcast together than this one. And now she's essentially like a sister to me. And the reason why we started Zero Block 30 and what 
I say zero block 30 is, it's kind of like what your, your podcast name, like the, the team room, like our, we were either going to go with platoon room, which I'm glad we didn't because then we'd be very much competing with you guys, <laughs> or it was going to be zero block 30. And um, which was originally it was going to be where I was going to post a blog at midnight where military dudes could come in and tell their stories, whatever they want. And then oh, at cool. seven o'clock when, when civilians come in, they could tell it all in the comments. And when civilians wake up at seven, I would delete the blog and it's gone forever where only we were going to talk about it. That's so that cool. was, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's where the name was going to come from. That never panned out. Um, but now I view it as like the online version of the VFW is what I tell people. I feel like it's, we don't do a whole lot of super in depth depth things unless it's like a very big like we did on Afghanistan at the, the withdrawal or we'll do it, something like that. But primarily, we're just trying to tell jokes like we would have in a platoon room, like in hanging out with yeah. folks and just busting balls and busting shops and bringing in people that we think are cool and interesting for our listeners. And it's really struck a chord with a lot of folks. And I love the messages that we get when people say things like, I feel like I'm back in when I listen to you guys. It's like such a relief listening. It's like people that understand my humor and the way that we talk and the way that we do things and things that you could never say by the water cooler, but is happenstance. And it's just all the time in the military that people miss because I, yeah. I, mm -hmm. I'm a firm, but no one misses the military. You miss the Marines or you miss the soldiers. You miss the sailors. You you don't miss the military. You miss your buddies. Yeah. And that's what our show tries to fill the gap as. Yeah. Yeah. You miss your buddies, the camaraderie, the purpose. Uh, mm -hmm. Not 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 this. Over the shared experiences. Yeah, the shared experience. Not this overarching uh, bureaucracy that's telling you, you know, how to lace your boots. Um, yeah, I do not miss the Marine Corps. I miss the Marines. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's cool, and it, it is—it's really gratifying to hear the kind of comments from people that it makes it gives them that kind of like sense of like camaraderie or togetherness again. Yeah, and no doubt, I think it's also just like you're doing right now. It's it's in, at least for me, and I think for a lot of our viewers, and you know, you guys might see the same thing. It's very therapeutic for people when when you leave the military, and then you're in this world where you might have some veterans around you, but but even. Even just having a veteran doesn't always mean you have shared experiences, right? There, there might right. be some common things, but you know, you hear somebody talking, or you hear like two people or three people sit together talking, and and it brings up like the good memories. It brings up those good things. You're like, oh, that I'm like I'm not alone in this experience in the world, and or having a hard time trying to ad adapt to this to this new world where things are very different. I agree with I agree with that totally, and I also think that there's something to be said about the cathartic nature of talking to people about the bad parts too. Yes. Like yeah. you're talking to a psychologist. Yes, that's very valuable. And obviously I, I really care a lot about that, but there's something to be said about telling your terrible parts to people and letting them hear that to let them know that they're not alone too. Like right. that it still affects you. And like when people respect you and respect what you've done and the type of person that you are and what you've accomplished, that they say, it's almost like you could take a little, oh, it bothers them too. That makes it a little bit more okay for me. Like maybe I'm not a pussy. Right. Like maybe maybe I am a normal person. Right. So where, uh, where can people go to find Zero Block 30? Where can they go to find you and Kate? 
So zero block 30 can be found anywhere that podcasts are. Um, we're trying to get our YouTube more. We didn't do that for a long time, but I highly recommend Spotify. Something going on with Apple. Apple podcasts are just the worst in the way that they do things now. Spotify, I think, is the best place to go. You can find me, the zero block 30 show on Instagram. If you want to laugh at service members just doing dumb shit, zero block 30 on Instagram is where to go. If you want to follow us on tw- Twitter, I'm at uncle chaps and she's at Kate Barstool and cons is at captain cons. And, and zero block 30 is all spelled out, right? Fin- uh, all spelled out. That's right. Yep. So you can find it on either one in any way. Cause we have it in the bio as one way and written out, but zero block 30, if you put in zero blog, it'll definitely be the first thing that comes up basically anywhere. Yeah. Cool. And what, what, what like what does the future look like for you you know things like cleared up you know like you you just kept on driving right you, you didn't know where you were going to end up but you started posting on twitter and that's one of the things i think that people sometimes when we don't know where we're going we just stop doing anything but you didn't even though you didn't know where you're going and maybe the life looked a little bleak you just kept on doing something having no idea that somebody would reach out to you and give you this opportunity where do you want to be in five years and 10 years? What do you have in the works? Five years, I want to be sitting in the same exact seat, doing the same exact thing that I'm doing, just a little bit better. Um, I I think ultimately, because there's going to be a time where I really just age out of dick jokes. It's got to happen. I mean, I can't <laughs> I can't do this. I can't be writing about fucking pumpkins at 50. I, I don't <laughs> think that that will go. I don't think that'll go over well. I, I'm 51, <laughs> and I assure you it's not as distinguished as it looks. Okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, maybe I will fuck it. We'll move it 20 years In 20 go. years when I'm done, yeah. then I'll have to figure that out. But I could see myself maybe eventually getting in either politics or being very heavily involved in um, a nonprofit of some sort. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't think it should take a dumbass podcast host to get gold star families, mental health care. I think that that should be done something by the government. And I would like to be a voice that helps that happen. Yeah. Well, so if any of you out there have any means of influence, if you're part of organizations and you'd like to, you know, help chaps get started with that or not get started, but help to boost them, um, you know, focusing on, you know, the I think that's amazing. I think Gold Star families are kind of left in the dust a lot of times. They really are. And I that the impetus of that was one of my Marines who was killed in Afghanistan when we posted a, a story about the 13 that were killed in Afghanistan, she commented and I saw it and she said, every time I see a casket draped in a flag, it makes my wound feel fresh. And that killed me. Yeah. Yeah. That's brutal. Yeah. It's, um, do you feel that, that people are taking better care of veterans now than they used to and uh, maybe not the gold star families but of veterans or do you feel that it's sort of a talking point for a lot of people but the government still isn't making any strong moves in that direction i think veterans as the group themselves have got to be very very careful i think that we are teetering on reverting back to where we were or where we could go back to where we were at in Vietnam, Mm -hmm. where I I hear stories from veterans that are very uncomfortable when people tell them, thank you for their service, Mm -hmm. or they'll correct people. It's not me or like the difference between Memorial day and veterans day and how some veterans that are very abrasive are viewing that thing. I think we have got to be very, very careful in how we approach that because there's going to be a time 
where 9-11 is no longer fresh and it's not fresh now yeah. where people and we see that like with polling my wife does a lot of research and like demographics generation z does not give a fuck about veterans like and in fact it's like that they are like totally disinterested they don't understand because they didn't grow up that way right and if we continue to take advantage and not be proactive and be good and i think that's why a lot of times the vet culture the vet bro culture very specifically is incredibly dangerous to the average veteran because the ones that are out there constantly you need to respect us for what we did and what we accomplished and what we are no like we have to be thankful for the things that this the country is doing and as leaders in the community continue to look after those that need the help like the gold star families like people who are suffering with ptsd the suicide epidemic and we've got to do it in a way that evokes compassion and right. not outrage right yeah, yeah and now, I, I think that if we you know if we're, we're going to publicly identify ourselves as veterans we also need to carry along with that the requisite uh, professionalism that right any of us would expect right and you know at the end of the day it's nobody owes us anything because we all volunteered for it. You know, we knew what we were getting into, especially, you know, post 9-11, you know, we, we rogered up and it gets frustrating at times. I mean, it does, it, it gets frustrating sometimes, not necessarily uh, because of how people, uh, speaking from my own personal experience, sometimes I have to remind myself that people don't owe me anything. Sometimes I have to, like when, when I was doing a lot of trips, and especially when I first came back, you know, and you've got that zero to 60 kind of flip. I'm in combat mm -hmm. now, but you're not in combat. Right. You're at home and somebody just pissed you off. Um, mm -hmm. You know, that whole, all right, look, like I volunteered. I, I was out there of my own willingness to be there. And, uh, you know, I mean, I don't feel like it's too much to ask for common courtesy, right. but then to, yeah. then to relate that to special treatment, to special treatment, or, you know, you should respect me because, or you shouldn't like cut me off, cut, cut in front of me in line because I'll kill you. It shouldn't be, no, you just shouldn't cut somebody in line regardless, just like I wouldn't cut somebody in line, you know? Right. And I, I, I like to view it as we, not that we're owed something. But there is a, a term that is getting thrown around in political surface of our political circles of entitlement. And I try to tell the service members, do not view entitlement as a bad word when it comes to the VA, when it comes okay. to getting your benefits, getting treatment for the things that you need. But I also, General Neller once told me that you have to really focus on being a lifelong Marine or a lifelong service member. And just because we're done in uniform doesn't mean that we don't continue to serve the community and show those pillars of respect, those pillars of character that we learn, that we value and implement that in every way that we can in our everyday life. And if people see that, and that's a common theme that the veterans that are doing that, the continued admiration for veterans will continue. If mm -hmm. not, we're going to lose it for sure. sure. Yeah. yeah. If, we, if we act the way that a lot of our most outspoken act now, we will absolutely lose it and it'll be the people that we as veterans that are our age now want to look after the most and that's the next group that's coming in we right. are going to fuck it up for our next group if we don't get it right credibility right. is gained and drops and lost in buckets exactly yeah you know, and and you know it's interesting also because i think we all have va horror stories and especially when it comes to 
like disability ratings and things like that. And I think that people take take that as well. Our own like the VA acts like it comes out of the you know the people making that decision are acting like it's coming out of their bank account to you know give me benefits for my knees or whatever. And so and not just them, but the veterans too. Yeah, the veterans do it too. Like my stepdad served twenty years, never went to the VA once, never. So he didn't ha even have a rating. How that has affected him now? He has brain cancer. He's in the last stages of his life. His brain cancer. The the steps that my mother has had to pursue because my stepdad wasn't proactive in getting the things that he would even at the basic tenets of getting registered with the VA, not doing those things ends up costing you at the end of your life. And it's because, and really primarily your generation going to the VA, you see, they told you you were a bitch. Like yeah. if you go to the VA or <laughs> yeah. look, or that you're taking advantage right. when it could not be further from the truth, you are entitled to your entitlements because you earned them. Shit. Right, like, right, right. You just earned them. Right. Yeah. And yeah. And, you know, it's just, I don't, it's a challenging situation because veterans do need, a lot of veterans do need attention that they should be getting through the VA. And so because I, because they're not getting it, I think a lot of them are acting out in other ways. You know, they, yeah. do, they feel like it's, they feel like the conflict is still going. That or, that or they just die, unfortunately, yeah. because they're not getting mm -hmm. the treatment they need. Yeah. Well, mm -hmm. um, well, chaps, I'll uh, let you go here. We'll wrap this thing up for tonight, but I really appreciate you um, sharing your experiences with us and telling this whole story. I mean, it's, this, your, your life story is pretty wild, but it also has a, a redemption arc to it. It was really cool to hear. Well, thank you. I appreciate the invite. And like I said, I've listened to y'all's stuff too, and I, I appreciate being on here, even thank though you. I am a poke. <laughs> no, you're not. You're, you're not but but well, you're, not, you're not a ribbonless bitch, though. Yeah, exactly. That's true. That's true. You can't take that away from me. Yeah. <laughs> so did your, did your gunny get in trouble? Uh, no, because I, <laughs> they did us a little solid because I ended up having a couple words with him when I got back too. So it was, <laughs> so it was like, well, if he gets in trouble, then you're going to have to as well because you assaulted a staff and CEO. And I was like, mm -mm, that's fair. <laughs> So. Well, th and there you have it. That's the PS uh, to this this podcast. Uh, join us next week, next <laughs> Friday. We're going to have Sean Naylor on the show, the author of Relentless Strike. Um, really excited to talk to him. Chaps, again, Chaps, thank you. If they, hey, thank you for rogering up because we did have a, another guest scheduled for uh, tonight, which is tomorrow night, but we had another guest scheduled and he could, unfortunately couldn't make it. And you just like jumped right in like, you know, yeah, really appreciate yeah, the last so minute. That. We really appreciate it. And check yeah, this no stuff problem. out uh, on Zero Blog 30. Um, yeah, it's amazing, man. We really appreciate it. We appreciate you. Our guest, our our podcast that came out today had your co-host on it. So people that listen to this show will like it as well. <laughs> so check that out. Um, and you will never be a pogue to us. You you will always be our people. Well, this was this was worth the two hours then. Love it. <laughs> All right, guys. We will, uh, we'll see you next week. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.